Hi there, I'm Michelle Musi, the irreverent, feisty, but irresistible author of Love Capades. And I'm Sally Kaplan, Michelle's partner in crime as her editor and clever co-host on this audio adventure. Welcome everyone to the Love Capades podcast. Welcome to episode 11 of the Love Capades podcast. Last time, we found Michelle studying international relations in a very personal way. She became embroiled in a couple of fascinating entanglements with two powerful Israeli men. Such memorable stuff. In this upcoming episode, you'll find our heroine in two more, oh my goodness, affairs. I can't wait for you to hear these stories. In fact, the second one is such a cliffhanger, which will spill into episode 12. This chapter is called Sunny Skies Again. Most of us remember with much affection Mike Nichols' 1967 film, The Graduate. In fact, it came out the very year I graduated from Stanford. You know the story. Dustin Hoffman's character, Benjamin, returns from college to his upper-class California home to figure out what's next in life. His nincompoopish parents won't let him be, so driven out of boredom and confusion, he allows one of his parents' contemporaries, Mrs. Robinson, to seduce him. It tickles me to report that I had my own Mrs. Robinson experience. To this day, the episode brings a huge smile to my heart. If I had a Girl Scout-like sash with love capade badges, this one would be toward the very top. One of my close girlfriends... Sally, was divorced and raising two wonderful sons all by herself. To make ends meet, she started a catering business and became the go-to personal chef for all the local glitterati. I used to spend many an hour in her kitchen watching her create food delights in voluminous amounts for the parties she catered. I was proud she had adapted my family meatloaf recipe into bite-sized mini sliders before sliders were a thing. What made them especially yummy was a piquant sauce and the secret ingredient in the meat mixture, sage. While the cooking was going on, her two boys, Corey and Nick, incessantly bopped in and out of the kitchen. At the time, I was in my mid-30s and the boys were in their mid-teens. The younger one, Nick, was constantly buzzing around the beehive, it seemed. He was good-looking, popular, and socially mature for his age. And it turns out he had a thing for me. I first realized this when he started giving me provocative gifts and sending me suggestive greeting cards at every holiday. One time he gave me a deck of playing cards with people in various sex positions. Another time he gave me a pair of edible panties. I guess he imagined he would be the one eating them off my bod. These gifts signaled with little subtlety that he fantasized about us. I still have the greeting cards that arrived over several years, and they are hysterical to read. I wish I could share them all with you. I will post a few of them on our Facebook page so you can see them. 
They are so funny. Eventually, Nick matriculated to USC in Los Angeles for college, which at that time was a more socially minded than academically oriented institution. The Trojans, don't you love that mascot name? (laughs) Were always a football powerhouse. And Stanford had a strong, if not lopsided, rivalry with them. During Nick's freshman year, he came north for the Stanford-USC game, staying with his mom in Menlo Park. He invited me to go to the game with him, which I was happy to do. USC won that year, as usual, but that wasn't the real game being played. Afterwards, we went to the British Bankers Club, the infamous scene of the Yossi meeting, to have a few drinks. Nick had a fake ID, of course, something every respectable college dude acquired. Never a big drinker. After a few cocktails, I was in a pliable state, shall we say. I knew what he had up his sleeve when Nick suggested we go back to my house. Once there, we landed on the couch in the family room. Soon, I felt the creeping hand of lust crawling stealthily along the back of the divan and onto my shoulders. I didn't know what to do, so I sort of froze. Next came the kissing. It was good kissing, so being a kiss addict, I decided just to give in to it. The kissing naturally moved on to active petting. Where did Nick learn such adept moves, I wondered. He was good at this stuff. We ended up in bed. Good grief. What was happening? More necking and rolling around under the covers. Just at the point of disrobing, I shrieked, I can't do this. I'll never be able to look your mother in the face again. (laughs) One of the all-time memorable love-cabade moments of my life. Poor Nick. Poor me. It's hard to unrev one's engines, even for a woman. At the time, I marveled at how a 19-year-old could make a serious play for the 40-year-old me. That took some major stones. I was no shrinking violet, so imagine the confidence required to take me on. But the heart wants what the heart wants, no matter what the age. Those must have been well-ensconced, long-suffering fantasies. For me, it was both flattering, unlike Shlomo, for instance, and intriguing, as I've always had a penchant for younger men, starting with Xander. Nick was very cute, adorable, in fact. That he wanted to make love to me was actually titillating. But there was that inner struggle again. Do what your body wanted, maybe even your heart, or follow the cultural pressure to behave. Well, that tug of war followed me to Los Angeles not too long after the first episode of Mrs. Robinson Revisited. Nick invited me to come down to L.A. for a weekend visit. I said yes, which proved that my inner jury had made the decision to go for it. He turned out to be my kind of host. We went to many of the cool spots in the Southland, to Prego, Wolfgang Puck's fabulous restaurant, 
where we chatted up a young Italian waiter named Bernardo and had a delicious meal. There it was again, love coupled with good food. Then off to Venice Beach to a happening nightclub. Nick knew me well. I liked to hang out in the in places to see and be seen. We were alike that way. Finally, it came time to go to his apartment, a place he shared with another guy. But that roommate was nowhere to be seen during my entire stay, banished in the name of love. This time, when we landed in bed, I was eager to experience Nick's lovemaking. Uninhibited sex is such a pleasure, so much more satisfying than when your mind gets in the way. One surprise was that he had the same condition as Sandro, a bent penis. Two crooked weenies in one life must be a record. (laughs) Just kidding. Luckily, it didn't interrupt the delight. For whatever reason, Nick and I never got it on again. If I knew why, I'd tell you. His busy college life no doubt played a part. My crazy life. Other relationships. Who can say? What I do recall is the day I attended Nick's wedding and reception some years later at a very fancy restaurant in San Francisco. He'd found a terrific girl, a very fortunate girl, with whom to settle down and have a family. I made sure to look very fetching in an all-pink ensemble with jaunty cloche just to silently say, we had our moments and they were special. Bon chance in your new life. Oh, and I'm quite sure his mother never had a clue. Thank heaven for small favors. So the next chapter, as we continue this adventure, is called Storm Clouds Return. Earlier that same year, I had one of my big deal romances. Cupid's arrow had found the bullseye. You could say it fell in the naughty category, but then who's to say what is naughty or nice in affairs of the heart? The year was 1986, the year I turned 40. My real estate boss at the time, an elegant if not avaricious woman named Peggy, prompted me one day to pursue a client whose mugshot was splashed prominently on the business page of the San Francisco Chronicle. He'd been hired to be CFO of Wells Fargo Bank and was moving from a large southern city where he'd been president of a chain of banks to the West Coast. My mission, which I decided to accept, was to get him in the car and sell him a house. This was easier said than done. First, I needed to get through to him at the bank. Getting him to take a call from a stranger required a bit of finesse and a lot of persistence. Finally, his voice came on the other end of the line. I explained that I was a realtor from the Atherton area, and I wondered if he'd been introduced to that part of the Bay Area. He quickly told me that he was moving to Hillsboro, where the bank chairman and CEO both lived. A good real estate agent is skilled at dealing with objections. One way to do it is to keep the person talking. Be upbeat, be engaging, I said to myself. When we started using first names, I knew that Lance Palmer was going to agree to meet me. That very Sunday, he came down to my office to view an assortment of houses. I donned my most professional and flattering outfit, a tailored navy blue pantsuit, 
much more conservative than my usual fashion-forward get-ups. Let me say here that my father was a very funny man full of memorable expressions. One of those that works here is, and he used to say this to me frequently, Navy blue picks up everything but men. (laughs) I'm afraid, Dad, it didn't apply in this particular case. I'd also made sure my car was spotless, another Realtor 101 practice. So once he arrived, we were off to see the wizard's array of homes. He was attractive and friendly, and we got along with ease. After our tour, I invited him to linger for a coffee and a suite at Blum's, my favorite eatery at the Stanford Shopping Center. My intent was to further tout my corner of the world and get his reaction to what we had seen. Somehow, I believe he misconstrued it to mean I was selling him on me rather than a house. He explained that his wife was coming to town to choose a house the following week, and he felt she should see a couple of the properties we'd visited. Great news. The fateful day arrived, and I took them both out to see the two top candidates. One was a two-story white home with columns surrounding the front door. It was the closest thing we had to a southern antebellum mansion. They liked it. Over dinner at one of our finest local restaurants, we discussed whether they should make an offer. Both were heavy smokers, and they nervously puffed away at the table like factory smokestacks. Mrs. Banker was very wifey-looking. That is to say, nothing about her was remarkable. She had a reasonable figure, was on the tall side with medium brown hair, and exuded neither poise nor confidence. But then, who knows what was going on between the two of them? She seemed quite nervous, in fact, which was helped little by the fact Lance was focusing all of his attention on me. In the end, they decided to make the offer. We got the deal, and then his wife flew home, where she and the three kids were to stay until school let out in June. Once the home inspections were completed, there were various documents Lance needed to sign. Rather than fax the stack back and forth, he offered to take me to dinner if I'd drive into the city. As a full-service realtor, of course, I said yes. I just didn't know how full the service would become. We were to meet at the Hayes Street Grill near the Civic Center. I was in the midst of another big real estate negotiation for a large parcel of land, so I arrived a bit late to our appointment. Lance was sitting on a stool at the cozy bar. I slid into the spot he'd saved for me, and right away the bartender told me I had a phone call. These were the days before our high-tech phones, so I'd had to leave the restaurant number for contact. You can kind of imagine how the important banker must have felt being upstaged by his real estate agent. Once at the table, we ordered wine and settled into choosing our meal. Then Lance said, and I'll never forget it, you are beautiful, brilliant, successful, and powerful. There are probably three men in the world who could handle you. 
And I responded without a pause. And I suppose you are one of them. So listeners, I have to stop at this point and you're going to have to wait till episode 12 to see what happens between Lance and Michelle. Michelle, 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 or should I call you Mrs. Robinson? (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) But you know, you know, what's so interesting is in the Mrs. Robinson movie, famously, she was the older woman who seduced the young man. And in this one, it's the opposite. (laughs) I know. I know. It's Mrs. Robinson with a twist. Mrs. Robinson with a twist. Exactly. So when you first learned of young Nick's interest in you, he was pretty obvious about it. (laughs) So what is it with those gifts he was sending you? I mean, seriously, here I am in my mid-30s, and the younger son of one of my best friends, Nick, is sending me these erotic gifts. (laughs) I mean, there was no subtlety whatsoever going on here. And not only was he sending me these erotic gifts, but every holiday he had gone out and chosen a greeting card that was also suggestive, erotic, and hysterically funny. I ha- I still have all the cards. I mean, they're, they're priceless. Well, I can't wait to see on the Facebook page some of them, actually. But, I mean, it's just insane. Did he really send you edible panties? Oh, you got to be kidding me. No, totally. I got this gift in the mail. I opened it up, and it was labeled edible panties. (laughs) Now, what was I supposed to think? You know, that I was going to eat them myself? I don't think so. I just can't believe the balls, no pun intended. Anyway, anyway, so the first the first time that he kind of makes a play to seduce you, just just remind us a little bit of what happens there because the very funny lines that happen. Well, okay. So fast forward from the time he's 15 to he's he's about 19 and he is a freshman at USC. And as I said earlier, he he was very socially adept and very kind of winsome. So the Stanford-USC football rivalry is a famous rivalry, and unfortunately, usually USC would win the games. But anyway, he was coming north to go to the game, and he contacted me and said, would you go to the game with me? And of course, I was delighted because I was going to go to the game anyway, and, you know, I liked Nick. So I said, yes, we went to the game, which we lost. Then Nick took me to the British Bankers Club, which is a place where I had met Yossi, and plied me with drinks. And since I'm not a big drinker, (laughs) the drinks were taking effect. (laughs) And then we went back to my house. You know, we took me home. And we sat on the couch in the family room. And I mean, it was unbelievable. All of a sudden, his hand is creeping on the back of the couch onto my shoulder. And I thought, okay, here we go. This is it, the big seduction scene. And then we started kissing. And because he was a good kisser, I kept kissing him. And then one thing led to another. And the next thing we know, we're in my bed. (laughs) And at this moment, I thought, what the F are you doing? So, you know, we're wrestling around under the sheets. And it gets to the moment of the big moment. 
And I just could I just couldn't go through with it. I just I said to him, I can't do this. I, I'll never be able to look your mother in the face. <laughs> so what was his reaction? What was his reaction? Was he totally respectful? What what happened to him? Well well he was he was crestfallen. I mean he'd gotten <laughs> he'd gotten that far and then I pulled the plug. So it was it was oh he, he was of course he understood, but you know, it was just so dramatic. And then, of course, there was another chance to 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 go further with the Mrs. Robinson story. So was it, how much later was it that he invited you to come to L.A.? It was like, I don't know, four to six months later. It was, the football game had been in the fall, and I think I went to Los Angeles in spring. And when you said yes, did you know, did you know what was to follow? Or you just, you just kind of were in the moment and said yes. No, no. I knew what this was about. <laughs> and I figured I figured that I'd feel, again, it's kind of like when I used to go to Italy and feel free. So I was going to leave my home turf, go to his turf in Los Angeles. I knew what was going to happen, but I, I, had res- I had decided that was okay. I wanted to experience it. So was part of why you felt so uninhibited when you really sealed the deal, no pun intended, because you were outside, you were away from home? Was that a piece of it? Yeah, that was a piece of it, definitely. Yeah. Also, there was something, there seems to be a theme, if I may say, with younger men. It, is there a theme with younger men? What What was it about him that drew you to him, as, other than his persistence? Well, I think that's an interesting question. First of all, it was very intoxicating that he wanted me and that he was young and gorgeous. And remember all the times I've said so far about how I love the grab you by the hair, drag you to the cave routine? Yes. <laughs> well, here was a 19-year-old who was doing that. I mean, he was going for it. And it was compelling. It was, you know, erotic. It was it was hot. So it was it was not only that, but the younger man thing. I've always liked younger men. And he was adorable. Adorable. So why not? I let myself go for it. Yeah, you went for it. I, I love it. And a crooked weenie and all, huh? <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, well, how could it be? I don't have Sally, have you ever had a crooked weenie? I, guy? I have. I have. I have. <laughs> Okay. Well, maybe it's not so rare. It's just that I thought at that point, another crooked weenie. Well, two in one lifetime is kind of rare. Yeah, I get. Yeah, exactly. And what what I'm really delighting in how this turned out, this, this Mrs. Robinson chapter of your life, is that you went to his wedding. That is so touching. And tell us again, it's so divine how you you dressed up for the occasion. And and just tell us again that part. Well, fast forward quite a number of years. And of course, I had remained friends with his mother, who I think to this day has no idea what took place. And here Nick had found the girl he was going to marry, who was a lovely girl. And of course, I would be invited to the wedding. And I made a special effort to look really spiffy-diffy. And when I got there, and of course, here he is with his bride, 
And I had this tender remembrance, this tender memory of what we had shared. And silently, I said, well, we had our special moments, didn't we, Nick? But now you have a beautiful wife and a family to come. And yet, I will always cherish our time together. And in my heart, I wished him well. It was it was a beautiful moment mm. for me. And was there a moment from him back toward you? Well, I don't know. He, <laughs> he didn't acknowledge anything out loud. Um, I'm sure he he noticed me, and I'm sure he had the memory as well. What I love about it is you made sure to look fetching, but it sounds to me like it wasn't that you were competing in any way or trying to be overly seductive to him in any way. It sounds to me like it was more celebrating the secret between you. Is that fair to interpret it that way? You've, you've got it just right. I was not there to compete with his pride. I was there to celebrate his, you know, nuptials and also to celebrate what we had shared together. And I think I've said already in other places in the podcast that whoever you are with, whether it's for a short time, a long time, whether you have seen the person last week or 10 years ago, you're always connected. You always are connected. And so I had this beautiful connection to Nick and I was there to celebrate it, to celebrate his life, to celebrate our time together. That's just, it's just really, really lovely. So moving on, if that's okay, there's a second love affair in this episode that begins with Mr. Lance, the, the banker. And I love the way you kind of set it up where, where it, not knowing where this was going to land other than business, your boss at the time makes you pursue this guy that she sees as a big shot in the newspaper. And how did you feel about her telling you that? You said you kind of accepted it, but you weren't you weren't keen on accepting her push. Well, I I remember the day she called me into the office. Now I'm not a newspaper reader. For some reason I just I don't like the touch of the newspapers and I just don't read the news that way. So she called me into her office and she had the San Francisco Chronicle on her desk open to the business page, which is, by the way, green, <laughs> my favorite color. And she said, look at this, Michelle. This, this is a guy who's just been brought out from a southern city and he's going to be the CFO of Wells Fargo Bank. He obviously is going to need a house. I want you to contact him. Well, <sighs> you know, I'm, I'm pretty willing to do stuff, whatever, but I didn't feel comfortable calling him up and making a cold call to this guy who was going to be a big deal at the bank. I just really didn't want to do it. But she had asked me to do it. So I tried and it worked. And when you first met him, was there something that you found attractive about him or, or did that come later? What, what was your first impression of him? Well, you know, we had this conversation and he was telling me he, he had no interest in Atherton although he had actually gone to the Stanf to a Stanford business school program at one point so he was familiar with the area but he was determined to move to where his uh, CEO and chairman lived in Hillsboro up the, up the road from where I live 
But I convinced him to come at least take a look. So that was on a Sunday afternoon, a rainy Sunday afternoon. And I was in my office. There were very few people in there at the time. So he came walking through the door. And, you know, he was an attractive man. He was well-dressed. He was, yeah, he was attractive. I mean, I wasn't going pitter-patter like I had in some other situations, but he was attractive. But then we got we got in the car, we went and looked at the houses, and I could tell he was very easy to talk to. He was charismatic. He was he was an interesting man. So, yeah, so I realized he was an interesting man. But you're trying to sell, it sounds like you're trying to sell a home to him. That's all that's going on for you at that point, right? That's all that's going on for me. And so after our little roundabout tour, I said, well, let's go have a, let's grab a cup of coffee. Now that was, my reason for doing that was not to get to know him better, but to find out how he reacted to what we saw and if I could influence him to consider moving to my part of the world. So you're being a good businesswoman, right? Yeah, I was in, I was being a good real estate agent. And also, you're quite the salesperson. I mean, how smart to show him a Southern-like home, knowing he, he was from the South, and it spoke to him, right? Well, it just happened to be on the market, so I put it on the list. And of the maybe six or seven houses we saw that day, there were two that interested him, and that was come number one on the list. Very cool, yeah. So then... You meet his wife because he wants to show her some of the homes. And it was interesting to me that you describe her kind of as, I think you used the word wifey. There was nothing that really stood out to you about her. And he's paying more attention to you. And I just wondered, how did that make you feel? I mean, here's the wife and you're just trying to sell them a house and his attention is all over you. What was going through you, your mind at that point? Well... <sighs> First of all, you know, she came out the next week and we had made this appointment so I would show them the two houses he had liked. And before we get to the dinner part, I have to say it was pretty much of a disaster in a way because just before we were to meet, my car broke down. Now, this this is not good. So I had to actually call the owner of the company Jim Cornish, and borrow his Cadillac to take them around on the <laughs> oh tour. God. So, okay, so we go see the two houses, and then I invited them to go back to this fancy restaurant so we could discuss it. And the three of us are sitting at the table, and the two of them are smoking like crazy. And she was particularly kind of nervous, and I have no idea whether it was that was her nature or if she was nervous about moving to California, if she was mad at her husband. I, I, I didn't know what her problem was. But anyway, during the dinner in which I'm trying to get them to commit to making an offer on one of these properties, that was my intention. He was totally focused on me. <laughs> And flirting with me, really. And I thought, well, that's kind of strange and weird. And she must not be too happy about this. But anyway, finally, they concluded they were going to make an offer on the antebellum house. And they did. And we got the deal. And then she flew home, never to be seen again. 
<laughs> Never to be seen again. Okay. And then remind me how you got to the the next meeting with him where he invites you to dinner. Okay. Well, once we were in contract, you know, there's a series of things that take place. And one of them is inspections. So we had the house inspected in which he had to be present for those inspections. And then I had to have him sign a whole bunch of documents. And it was pretty awkward to have to fax them up to San Francisco. But anyway, he suggested that rather than faxing them back and forth, that if I'd come and have dinner in the city, he'd sign the papers then. So great. You know, of course, I agreed to do that. <laughs> but at that point, are you still in the headset of this is business? Absolutely. I was, you know, getting... I was getting the deal consummated, ah, but I didn't really know what kind of deal was being, what, what kind of deal was being consummated here. Michelle, you have a way with lines. Okay. So, so you get there. I think it's the Hay Street Grill, which is a wonderful place. You get there and he's sitting on a bar stool and he has a seat next to you. And what happened? That's a phone call for you? Are you serious? Yeah. So, you know, and that was on the day we didn't have cell phones. So, the day that I was to go up to the city or the evening and meet him, I was in the middle of a really big negotiation for a parcel of land. And my client was the builder, and we were trying to get this parcel of land in, under contract. And so I was in the middle of that negotiation. So I drive up to the city. I sit down next to him on the bar stool. And I had had to leave the phone number for the restaurant as my contact in case somebody needed to reach me. So when I sat down, the bartender said, you have a phone call. <laughs> and I then had to take the phone call because it was about this big deal I was negotiating. Well, you can imagine how Lance must have kind of felt about that. Well, what's kind of cool about the whole thing is the setup that you're reminding us of. I mean, he's a big, he's a big guy. And here you are, kind of looking like an equal to him. You know, you walk in to do a deal with him and what happens? You're the one that has to leave for a phone call, kind of, I think you even used the word, upstaging him. And not every man would feel comfortable with that. So so then what happened? Did he feel comfortable with it? Well, I have to say, I have to interject now something that we've discussed before. And that is that my experience before that had been that American men couldn't really handle a powerful woman in most cases. And that if they were intimidated, they didn't pursue me. Here was an exception. I mean, here is a big, important, powerful guy on many levels. And I was exhibiting the same kind of prowess and power. And it did not put him off. Because, you know, we sat down at the table after this phone call and the whole thing, and that's when he said to me these words, which are indelibly printed in my psyche. He said, you are beautiful, brilliant, successful, and powerful. There are probably three men in the world who could handle you. Now, that's quite a statement. But obviously, he wasn't put off by all that. And then as if in a movie scene, I responded without even a second's pause. And I said, and I suppose you were one of them. <laughs> now, when you say that was 
what he said was one of the most significant lines you had ever heard, really, in your life from man. What is it that, that makes you recall those lines? Just go a little deeper with me on that. Well, it's extremely complimentary, isn't it? I'm beautiful, brilliant, successful, and powerful. Who wouldn't want to hear that? And he meant it. Well, was it touching an insecurity in you or the opposite? No, it wasn't touching any insecurity. I thought to myself, well, he's pretty smart. He gets me. <laughs> he gets uh-huh. me, and he's not put off by me. Right, right. Very, very seductive ingredients, right? I mean, I, I, those are that, was, that sentence was, or those two sentences, were extraordinary. And I will never forget them. I remembered every word. And they, were in, they are imprinted in my being, really. Um, and it was rare. It was a rare thing, Sally. I mean, most men, you know, I've obviously through the years had a lot of experiences with powerful men, and the stories that are upcoming will continue to demonstrate that. But here was a powerful man who was attracted to me in spite of my power. But deeper than attracted to you, it sounds like he got you on a level that had deep appreciation for you, which is extremely seductive. And you left us with your line back to him. I suppose you're one of them, one of the men. If He said something like only three in the planet, right? (laughs) And then you're leaving us with such a cliffhanger of what's to come. I can only imagine more. And I can only imagine our listeners are going to want to hear more. Can't wait. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's more to come. It's quite a story. And we'll be, it'll be revealed in episode 12. So there we are, left on a cliffhanger. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Well, let me just say, it, it was one of the biggest love capades of my life. So let's see what happens in episode 12. Thank you for listening to the Love Capades podcast. If you'd like to submit questions, please send them to michelle at lovecapades.com. And that's spelled M-I-C-H-E-L-E at L-O-V-E-C-A-P-A-D-E-S dot com. Also check out our Facebook page and website, both called Love Capades, for fun facts and groovy visual stuff. I am the author, Michelle Musi, and my co-host is Sally Kaplan. The Love Capades podcast is skillfully and playfully produced by StudioPod Media. You can find them at studiopodsf.com.